Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine. This week, we're chatting to Anthony McGowan, and he's another author who just has stories in his bones. He's published over 50 of them. Uh, He's written for kids, uh, for young adults, for adults. He's written philosophy books, sports books. His new one is Lark. It's the fourth in the Truth of Things collection, meant to be a trilogy meant to be a trilogy then he wrote another one now it's a collection it's just been nominated for the 2020 carnegie award we talk about why he wrote it to tell the story of his hometown also how he decides what genre of book he'll write next when he's so prolific and how he knows when his story is on the right track you know that you're doing something right if the characters perhaps don't want to exactly follow that plot they have their own ideas and they might wrench you either side of your plot line um but, it, you know, I've never really struggled with working out what to do next once I've had that original idea. It, it, it's simply a matter, you know, m- m- my job as a writer is to sit down and work it through to, to, the, to the end. Um, and it's, you know, the, the difficult part is just those, that mechanics of getting myself physically, getting my fingers moving. Once, once I'm there, it's just not trudging along, but you, you, you follow that path. It's all on the way with Anthony McGowan this week on Writer's Routine. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Yes. Welcome along. My name's Dan Simpson. This is Writer's Routine. Thank you so much for listening. It's the podcast where we take a look inside an author's working day to to see how they work, how they plan, how they plot, fingers crossed, how they hopefully publish as well. This week, uh, we've got Anthony McGowan on the show. He's written all sorts. Deadly Beast interactive novels for kids, thrillers for adults. Uh, His new one is aimed at reluctant teenage readers and and it harks back to the type of forgotten town that he grew up in. Uh, He chats about the two places that he he writes in, in in our interview, uh, and when he thinks it's best to go to the British Library instead of just staying at home working in the study all day. And also you can find out why his desk is just so messy as well. Sounds like like it's covered in broken iPads. Uh, we, We talk about why he writes in so many random genres and how he decides what he will write next which to tell you the truth isn't always what he wants to write next and he'll explain more about the the famous pat the dog trick also listen to the immense quality on this recording by the way we were miles away from each other when we spoke but apart from me being maybe a tad quiet i don't think you'd ever know that we weren't in the same room Uh, I think it's a nice rambly chat this week, so stay there. We start, as always, with what Anthony McGowan sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. 
Oh, blimey. It's a terrible mess. Um, well, I've, I basically got two places that I write, either in my study where I am now or at the British Library. But um, here I'm surveying a horribly filthy and cluttered desk. Um, <laughs> uh, there are there's, um, there's used dental floss lying around. Uh, there's two broken iPads. There are two cameras, one of which is broken. Uh, there are old train tickets. Um, there's my cricket cap. There are two dirty coffee mugs, um, pens strewn around, USB drives strewn around. It, it's it's genuinely awful. Oh, in, in the corner, uh, there's a Madagascan musical instrument called, a, I think it's called a Vatvahila, Vatvahila, which my son brought me back from Madagascar a couple of years ago. So that's my that's my desk. Oh, and two, and two broken phones as well. Begs the question. I do want to look around your room further, but begs the question. Why don't Why don't you just slightly clean it up? What is it? What is it about the clutter that's that, that's? Is it not getting in the way? Is it maybe helping the chaos of your story? But what's happening there? I, you know, I, I wish there were good creative reasons for it. I, I think what happens is that every every six months or so, my my wife forces me to tidy out my my foul study, and and for about a week it's tidy. Then gradually the the, the filth and the clutter reaccumulate, uh, and I, I just kind of literally I, I I brush it all aside so I can work. I think I've just got a very I've got a very high tolerance for mess, so uh, you know most of the time I, I just don't see it. it uh, as long as I can re- you know reach my keyboard, I'm fine. But so uh, there's no positive reasons for it. But nor are there are there strong reasons for me to tidy the thing up, until finally it becomes un- unbearable. It's, and I'm kind of in. I'm, I think it was about maybe it was about two weeks ago. That I last had a bit of a tidy, so maybe it's almost time for it again. So that's the despair of your room. <laughs> T- tell me about the joy of it. Then is there a is there a window with a view? Have you um, got books on a shelf? Have you got art? Is there any inspiration there? Y- y- yeah. Well, uh, right in front of me, actually, on, on the wall, um, there's a big montage that my again my wife did for me uh, for my fiftieth birthday, which is lots of photographs in a frame of uh, of the kids mainly and, and her and a few of me. So that's a nice thing to, to look at. On my right hand side, I've got a, a rather messy pin board, um, which is my sort of to do area. So bills to pay. Remind, oh my god, I'm looking at now, blimey, the stuff I'm supposed to be doing, it's terrifying. Um, so that, that that's, in, in theory, helps me stay organised. My pinboard on the right. To my left, see, right, right in front of me, there's just a, a blank wall apart from this large montage. To my left, there are two windows. Um, so I've got to kind of strain round to look out the window, uh, which, in theory, helps me prevent distractions, because I'm the kind of person who would just gawp out of a window all day if it was there. Uh, and then behind me, there's uh, there are my bookshelves, um, w- which is mainly the my kind of working or useful books I need ready access to, um, so dictionaries and, and and other kind of reference works, uh, and also behind me there are two guitars. <laughs> this is all in, in quite a small room. There, it's the smallest and most unpleasant room in our in our entire flat. Is there any story inspiration there, Anthony? If I were to, if I were to walk into you. Your study cluttered as it is. <laughs> if I if I could find it, would I have any clue uh, of of the story that you're telling at that point? Are, are there post-it notes? Is there a whiteboard? Is there any clues there? Um, n- n- no. I mean, you, but if you look at my my shelves, my shelves behind me kind of change depending on my my project. So, um, my last big adult book was a book a kind of history of philosophy. So I had shelves full of philosophy books. So you might work it out from there. But I think it's more if you came in here, you'd you'd view it as inspiration for your own book. If you're writing about some eccentric hoarder or mad person, <laughs> this would be his his room. Um, but uh, I mean, in terms of my organisation um, for, for for writing, I tend to do that all electronically. So 
you know, most of my notes are in digital form on my computer rather than being um, uh, analog notes on bits of paper. You also mentioned the British Library there. Yes, yes. Talk to me about the decision of, of when you're going to write there, when you will write at home. Um, again, it's kind of done on, on, on whim and, and, and various other other factors. I mean, it, it's definitely the place where I, I work best uh, and I try and get there as often as I can. And I mean, often it's it's maybe two or three days a week when I'm right in the middle of a project. Because it is the perfect. I don't know if you, do you know the British Library at all? I you, do very well. Yeah, I'm not a fan uh, of the way it looks. I, I don't really like that uh, baroque style. But but being in, uh, okay, uh, not baroque. What am I wittering on about brutalism? I don't like that brutalism. But, yeah. but being inside, uh, oh, it's a spectacular place. If you can get a seat, what's the secret to it? That's true. Uh, get get there early enough because most of the people there are, I suppose, they're, they're students and scholars, and they're they're so bone idle that they, you know, it's only from about ten thirty that it starts to fill up. If you get there for nine, there's always a seat. Um, and and I usually work in um, well the biggest reading room is Humanities Two which you probably know, um, but there's also Humanities sorry Humanities One there's also Humanities Two upstairs where there's occasionally seats, uh, and if things get really bad I can work in the the rare books reading room where there's always a few seats, and even that then in, in the further flung parts of the library there's um, social science areas and science areas full of science nerds and occasionally I'll I'll, I'll sneak in there. You said that. That is the place that you definitely work best. Mm-hmm. Why is that? What is it about the British Library that, that's bringing the words out of you? Um, well, it's partly just I've made that commitment to get there. I mean, that, that's that's an element of it. And once I've made that commitment and gone there, I feel I can't just sit here and do nothing. I've, I've got to work. But also the, the atmosphere, I think, is perfect. It's it's quiet without being silent. So it's not kind of eerily silent. Um and so you can concentrate on your work but also every now and then um you, you know you can't work solidly for six or eight hours you've got to have little mental breaks and you can just sit back in your chair and gaze around this rather beautiful room uh full of interesting strange eccentric people uh, so for me it's that perfect combination of being quiet enough to concentrate when you need to do that but also having some visual interest around when you you just want to let your mind float for a while now the main part of the show is is talking about the actual writer's routine, and you're you uh-huh. know over forty books down now, as you, as you mm-hmm. say. Um, it makes me think, and what you've already said about you knowing that you work best in the not eerie silence, but the quiet mm-hmm. of the British Library. That your writing routine might be quite studied. You know exactly w- what you need to do to get the words down. So Anthony, talk me through yours. The moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed, on a day when you are sat down to write, how does it look? Uh, are we assuming that we're in the non-lockdown mode? <laughs> non-lockdown. Yeah, you, you've got. You, you can go out as much as you'd like. Yeah. Well. Um... My, 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 my wife works. Um, I have a. I have two children. One's off at university. My, my daughter's in the sixth form. So the first part of the day is me basically shambling around in my pajamas, making breakfast and tea, and, and getting everyone else sorted so they can leave the house. Um, and then if I'm working at the British Library, I'll uh, I'll make myself a packed lunch, which is a almost infantilizing thing that I do. Uh, and I, I I'll cycle off to the British Library by about nine nine thirty usually, trying to get there before ten. It's about a it's about a twenty five thirty minute cycle into the British Library, and that actually um, I, I find cycling a particularly creative mode of transport because um, my my body knows what it's doing, so I don't have to think consciously at all about the process of cycling. So my mind already is beginning to think about about the the job in, in hand, you know, whatever book I'm writing. Uh, and all, I've always found that I've had a lot of my best ideas when when I'm cycling. There's just something about being in in motion but without having to particularly think about it, that just, I don't know, the, the creative juices get going. 
Um, so then I'll reach the British Library, um, uh, find my find my desk, <clears throat> get my bits and pieces all sorted out, my, my, my laptop plugged in. Uh, and then usually I'll spend probably an hour actually faffing. So doing nothing useful at all, whether it's, you know, checking email or, or mucking about on Facebook or Twitter um, or, or, or just um, any kind of work avoidance strategies that, that I can come up with. Uh, and after about an hour, I'll suddenly realise, OK, I've got to knuckle down now. And I tend to um, I tend to when I'm actually in the process of, of thinking and writing, it's all quite fast. So uh, the ideas come quite quickly. I hammer away with two fingers. I don't know, are you a can you touch type I am lucky enough yeah because uh, I, I kind of grew up with a computer so I'm I'm of right. that age where we can all kind of do it blindfolded yeah yeah you know every every year I think this is year I'm going to learn how to touch type because it would be a massive advantage just in terms of wear and tear on my two index fingers which take a real battering um but anyway I hammer away uh, and it, I, I'm also quite aware of the fact that I'm quite noisy when I'm doing this um and I remember a couple of years ago, I was hammering away in the library and um, this very nice American elderly lady um, smiled at me after a while. And she said, I, I can tell when you're when you're really being creative because of the noise. I think it was a rather polite way of telling me to shut up. Shut up. Um, <laughs> so um, so it, it tends to come in very dramatic spurts. So I might then do a 40 minute or an hour spurt of intense writing. And then I'll have often another hour when I'm just basically doing nothing again. And that, that sort of takes me around to, to lunchtime. I, I wander off into the courtyard of the British Library, um, uh, eat my packed lunch, um, whatever the weather. I sit in there in the rain or the or the shine, uh, and then back in with, for a sort of similar session in the afternoon. So that, that's my my British Library work day, which is essentially kind of periods of indolence. Um, interspersed with periods of intense, dramatic typing. Um, and my, my, my work day at home is um, is a, a bit more sort of leisurely of kind of leisurely of pondering and milling around the flat and doing vague bits of housework while I'm sort of considering and thinking. And then I'll get in front of my computer and again have that intense, rather violent typing spurt. Well, when I started, you know, the first... I reckon the first 10 years, I was much more methodical about about um, about that. I, I used to make sure I wrote a thousand words every day uh, and I wouldn't stop until I'd done my thousand words. Uh, I, I, as you know, you can write a thousand words in an hour uh, and sometimes it might do that. And then I'd, I'd try and carry on and on a really good day, I might write, you know, three or four thousand words, but I would never stop until I'd written a thousand words. Uh, now um, I, I'm, I'm less... Um, I'm less rigorous in that sense. Um, I still hope I've done a thousand words a day, but it's more I. I just. Uh, I almost. I've stopped counting the words now. Why do you I think that is? I'm... Is is it because, as you say, over forty books down, maybe you just have confidence that you will get it down some way? Um, I think it's almost sadder than that. It's. Uh, I think I've just got less less productive and, and less sure that I can write a thousand words of, of good prose every day. That I mean, certainly back. What, what I've, I found historically was that there was no real link in between between quantity and quantity. So if I wrote three, a th- if I had a you know really good three or four thousand word day, those words would be just as good as a painful five hundred or a thousand word day. So uh, it, it was just once I got going, then it was all of a roughly the same kind of quality. Um, and so but I had a kind of confidence that it was whatever I wrote would, would be all right. Uh, and now I, I don't know. I, I've, I've used up so many words. I mean, I, I don't know how many words there are in, in, in 50 odd books, but I, I'd guess over a, a million. 
and, uh, and now there are, it just genuinely feels that there are fewer inside me and I've got to work harder to wring them out. Um, so I, I, th- I think now, uh, rather than a thousand word plus, I, I, I would guess that I'm more of a 500 words a, a day person. Well, that leads to this question. How perfect do those 500 words need to be? Or are you quite a vomit drafter and you tend to just clean it all up in the edit? <laughs> um, uh, a weird hybrid of, of the two. Um, I, 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 as I kind of said earlier on, that, that the words come out quite fast when I'm in, in the flow. Um, but they tend to come out... Um, more or less in, in the finished form. Um, and I, th- I think it's because of... of um, I mean, you get some animals that have a, a, a long gestation period where they, you know, they're kind of the baby's growing for a long time inside the, the mother's womb, like elephants. Then the birth is, is sort of dramatic and, and, and rapid. And I think I mean, it's a bit like that, that so somehow a lot of the, of the editing, if you like, is going on before I even write. It's kind of forming itself in, in my head almost subconsciously. Uh, and so certainly when, when I look, my first draft is very, very close to my final draft. Uh, there's very little tinkering that, that goes on. Um, and even you know, in terms of getting the edit back from the editors, there tends not to be very much changed. Well, this is an interesting one. If you say that now you, you seem to almost be less productive than you were at the start, mm-hmm. during your, your your days of bursts of creativity, where you are having an hour or so at a time just pondering, waiting for the, mm-hmm. to be rather uh, old-fashioned and romantic about it, waiting for the muse to strike. But, um, <laughs> I know, right? I know. That's the type of podcast we are. Uh, but have you learned any trick to to help it on its way? Is there something that you can do that does help that creative burst happen uh, well there's definitely these two almost physical concepts of uh of momentum and inertia so that there's the inertia you have to overcome just to get going um and you know i i love the idea of the of the muse coming and visiting you but i think with me it's it's more of an initial wall i've got to get over to make myself start writing and often i mean literally physical things will help like a cup of like well, or a second or a third cup of tea and you get that little kind of caffeine buzz, and that is it just enough of an energy shove to to get you going, or um or, or it, you know if I'm still writing towards the end of a end of a day, um and I'm a bit stuck, then then yes, a glass of wine or or uh, or beer might, might might help. I shouldn't that that's pro- probably not 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 good advice, <laughs> um, but it, I mean I, I you know I, I've often got a final decent five hundred words at the end of the day by having a glass of wine and just just I don't know helping me helping get the the, the fibers loosened up is there any but, stru- so, so, oh sorry you go so, so but, but I mean, genuinely that that, that 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 big problem is, is inertia of getting going in the first place uh, and just something as, as you know a strong coffee or tea can often just be that that, that make that difference um and that, but then i think that that once you've got that momentum going it's important to carry on going for as long as you possibly can because once you stop there'll be that an, another episode of, of inertia and having to overcome that that wall again how much structure is there to the end of your day when you when you come home from the library is that it or do you always find the story are you able to put the story to bed or is it always there somehow and it's just a case of of waiting to go again with it oh, well, you know there's, there's so much sort of family life happens in the evenings it's very hard for me to then to come back into my study uh, and, and do more work so pretty much when, when I get home that that's it um, but I, I, again, I'm, I'm presuming that, that subconsciously that there's still some work happening 
you know these things are being you know reassembled or or um or, or these ideas forming you know while i'm making the family dinner or just watching telly in the evening um but i suppose again i i'm i would say probably the most important creative part of my life as a writer is is my life as a reader uh and it's the evening on the whole where, where i do my reading so you know so many of my ideas spin off from other texts or um or, or whatever that I've, i'm consuming in, in the evenings let's talk about the plotting and, and planning how do you know mm. what you are going to write every day Oof, um well I, I suppose it might make sense to take a step back from that so uh, how i first think about the overall story because um, I mean, that, that tends to come as a sort of sudden flash of an idea or a concept. So m- my very first book that I um, that I wrote, actually my second one that was published, was a book called Hellbent, uh, which is about a teenage boy who dies and goes to hell. Uh, and the, the, the idea for, for that just suddenly came in, in a flash of the, you know, both the, that, that initial concept of the boy dying and it being a comedy and a rough idea of what the plot would be, uh, you know, almost didn't, didn't have a, a temporal space in which the idea occurred. It was literally came to me in a, I hate the idea, the, the cliche of the flash, but it was just there. So then it was a matter of simply sitting down and writing out and expanding on that original idea. And, and so, uh, uh, Again, I, I certainly originally, and, and to a large extent now, I, I was the kind of writer that would sit down and work through from chapter one through to the end, r- roughly knowing where I was going to where I was going to go. And so I might be pulled in different directions along that along that path, but broadly speaking, I would write chronologically. So, so then each day's work was simply picking up from where the narrative ended yesterday and trying to take it on as far as I possibly possibly could. You always have to be wary about trying to trying to look inwards and examine yourself because uh, it, it, it's it's very hard to get yourself right in in a way, and it's, um, your own mythologizing can 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 obscure things. But I suppose there's two factors. One is that um, I, I would never describe myself as being particularly bright. But my head is full of stuff. There's a lot of material in my head. So I've got a very hard, large hard drive and a rather slow processor might be the way to <laughs> think about it. Um, so, uh, and so, you know, I, I, I spent a long time at university, studied, uh, I did three different degrees in the end. So there's a huge mass of information in my head. And so my, my philosophy book was just a way of kind of eventually get, getting out of my head. But um I suppose also maybe the way to explain the variety of work that I've done is just the, the fact that life is complicated and you never quite know where you're going to go in it. It's not, you know, your, your life hasn't got a plot other than the, the decisions that you make. And, and so when I first um, started to write, I always thought that I would be an adult writer and that I would write maybe one um literary novel a decade uh, and I, I i assumed that i would have a job as a teacher of uh, philosophy in a, in a provincial university um but i never got the job because i did a phd in, in philosophy but I, I never got the job teaching in university i had a really boring job uh, as a civil servant but both boring and rather hard and i began to think of a of a, of a story and that's when i came up with the idea of hellbent and, and when i um began writing it i had no idea that it would be a book for teenagers or, or young adults or children it was meant to be an, an adult book um but it um and i, I it kind of gushed out of me i thought it was a work of staggering genius the way you do I, I sent it off to various agents they all rejected it um saying it was totally insane would never get published um but eventually i i um i met an agent who said why don't you try writing something more more um more sensible um, a bit more commercial so then i wrote an adult thriller called stag hunt 
which um, the agent took it on, managed to sell it. Can I quickly uh, cut in there? This has led me to a, a separate question. When you've met the agent and he says, how about you write, they say, how about you write a, a commercial uh, adult thriller? Mm-hmm. The, the idea for Stag Hunt, how forced, using the word forced in quotation marks, I don't mean it to be aggressive or insulting. <laughs> no, no, not at all. How forced no. is that idea? You sat there thinking, I need to write an adult thriller. What's it going to be? Yeah, you know, that was exactly what happened. Um, so my agent, she's actually a, a woman, Stephanie Cabot, um, William Morris, um, she tried to sell Hellbent. So, uh, uh, and again, she, she got the same kind of response. It was just too different, too weird, too eccentric. And it was at that point she said, look, I think you're a really good writer, which always always helps. Can you think of something more commercial? Um, so I went off uh, and came up with two or three ideas, which I sent her. One of them was Stag Hunt, which is it's a book about... Um, uh, a, a stag weekend uh, in which um, there, there are a group of quite posh kids, uh, young men rather, uh, one outside a, a working class person gets invited to it almost by mistake, uh, and it turns out there's a, a serial killer working on the in the in the in the stag weekend, bumping people off. So that, that kind of idea, I, I, I worked out the idea, went to her with it on the two sides of A4. She said, "This is perfect. Write this." Uh, I wrote the first few chapters, and she managed actually to sell the first few chapters to a publisher, just based on the on the on the synopsis and those chapters. So I've then gone from being someone who's writing a kind of slightly eccentric book about a teenager who dies and goes to hell to writing an adult th- adult thriller. Um, but once the adult thriller got published, then suddenly I wasn't this kind of crazy outsider, and so then publishers started to look at Hellbent. Uh, it was only at that stage that I thought, well, this is probably not really an adult book, Hellbent. It's a book for teenagers. So I slightly rewrote it. Um, uh, it was picked up by Random House. So I suddenly had these kind of two different strands, my adult thriller writing career and now a teenage writing career. Uh, and um, I mean, I can talk about why the adult thriller writing career kind of tragically went wrong. Uh, but uh, but the, 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 you know, the teenage career just went a bit more successfully. So that pulled me in that direction. Uh, but then, sorry, this is a, a really complicated way of answering why I've, I've written such a bizarre <laughs> variety of books. Uh, but t- you know, teenage books, particularly the kind that I write, which aren't sort of fantasy based, um, that they, they, they don't ever sell that many copies. You know, most of my teenage books sell 10,000 copies. No one gets rich on that. So my publisher asked me to write for younger children, which just simply sell more copies. So that then pulled me back more youthfully still. Um, so then I was, so by this stage, I suddenly find myself writing for teenagers, for adults and for younger children without ever really planning any of it. These are just things that, that happened. And it turned out that I was, you know, I, I could just about do all these things with the modicum of, of, uh, of success. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now, before we get back into it with Anthony McGowan, I've had an idea, which might work, it might not work. But, you know, it's week 12 of lockdown and I'm doing very little else, so I thought I'd give this a go. How do you fancy getting your book to kind of sponsor the show for an episode? You see, I've just put a tear up over on our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash writers routine. And if you sign up to that for just one month, I promise you can stop the page right after that. Uh, your book can sponsor the show. So if you've published one over the last few weeks, if, if you've worked so hard on getting your first novel down and lockdown, it has kind of it hasn't really helped uh, what you've worked for ages on. If it hasn't helped it get noticed. I will do that for you, right? I will give it a big old plug at the start of an episode. Do you remember the uh, the Scrivener ads that I did a few weeks ago? Yeah, you'll get that. You'll get that for a week. Now, I don't know, if I'm honest. I don't know if it will make any difference to your sales. I can't really promise anything. I, I can say that this show is listened to thousands of times a month all around the world. So it might help you. It will definitely help us, if I'm honest. All the pledges help keep bringing you chats with the world's best authors as often as we can. Uh, You can send me all the details about your book. I will read them through. I will parlay it up nicely and kind of professionally, and I I will give it a massive shout-out, I promise. Uh, You can do this for just one week for a one-off pledge of $40. $40 a month, and you can get your book to sponsor the show over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Right, let's get back into it then with Anthony McGowan talking about his Carnegie Award shortlisted Lark. Uh, Although we're really talking about all of his stories and generally how he works. He's written across such a wide range uh, of books. It's interesting interesting to see how he dips his toe into each genre. Uh, In this half, we talk about how much he knows about a story before he starts writing. Also, on that, uh, you can hear about the amazing idea he had for his very first book. Uh, it's utterly brilliant. Can't believe I've never heard of the idea before. Uh, And you can find out why he had to change that idea to get it published. Uh, We also talk about how he forced a plot into a novel that really was solely about place. And we pick things up talking about writing for young adults and and kids. Uh, How does he adopt the voice to talk to a kid, to talk to a teenager, adopt it so he's not preachy, but not pandering, not patronising? And how does he make sure that people actually want to read his stories? I found it straight away very easy to write with that teenage voice. And that's, you know, for the, I know it's a, a slightly cliched answer, but it's because so many of, of the men in particular, I know my age, were still basically teenagers. You know, whenever I get together with my, with my pals, we end up talking about, you know, the girls we fancied when we were in the, in the lower six and that, that, that sort of thing. So, you know, in, in some ways I was always tethered to that world. Um, and I had, I had a particularly vivid, uh, and intense time at secondary school. Uh, you, you know, in many ways, I had a great time, but it was a. I went to my first secondary school was a, a violent, rather dangerous place. So stuff happened every day that that burned itself into my into my mind, and later came out as as, as stories. Um, but so, um, a, I was always slightly in that world. I never quite escaped from from that that school world. Um, but but that. But in terms of technique, uh, nearly all of my, in fact, I think all of my teenage books are first-person narratives. 
uh, and that that's my, my basic advice for getting into into that uh, any particular world you've got to have a first person narrator uh, and that meant that um that because i i was telling the story through the mouth of a of a 14 15 16 year old kid i automatically found myself adopting the right sort of age appropriate language for, for that that readership um so it was that combination of me still being in that world and then using a first person narrator now obviously that the danger is i'm a fully grown adult <laughs> adult person so i i don't know how teenagers today talk amongst themselves as soon as you introduce an adult into any teenage group that they, they, they change the way they behave so i had to kind of assume that there was enough continuity with the way that we used to be 30 years ago 30 plus years ago when i started uh so so that there was a connection there um and perhaps even more importantly in terms of technique uh, all of my teenage narrators are slightly odd quirky individuals um telling their story so that they're not typical teenagers but also what about the words that you're using making sure you aren't using language that's too complicated for a kid yeah when with teenagers i basically didn't dumb down the language at all um because of the nature of my kind of slightly geeky narrators um i i I don't think i would have ever written for younger children if i hadn't actually had children myself so uh, i remember talking to my, my my son in particular when he was at junior school and he was talking about how you know his interactions with his pals and the gangs they had and the, the, the roles within the gangs. And that really was like getting in a time machine. Suddenly, I, I zipped back to before my teenage years, which had them so large in my head. And I remembered again being a, a younger child and the kind of adventures that I had. Uh, and so I, I kind of, I, I managed to, to remember my way, my way back into that world. Um, but without Gabriel's voice to... to as a kind of bit of grit around which the pearl formed i don't think i could have could have done it um but i suppose as well there's a, a kind of puerile element to my my humor at the best of times uh, and so I, I i really let that run wild so my, my books for younger kids are um uh, they're, they're, they're pretty silly and and rude <laughs> Can I ask a question? A lot of toilet humour. <laughs> can I ask a question that once again, um, it might sound quite forthright. Uh, I, I don't mean it to. It's just the way it will come out. Uh, you mentioned that your uh, YA books, the ones you write for teenagers, tend to only sell about ten thousand copies, whereas mm-hmm. the the ones for younger kids will sell a lot more. Why yeah. don't you focus more of your attention on writing young books if that's where the money is? Uh, well, because well, there's very complicated formulas at work here for a writer. Um, there's the stuff that I want to do, the stuff that I love doing. But then I also have to p- pay the bills. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's it's, it's tough. I, and also, I suppose that you've got to write the story that's in, inside at that moment. You know, I, I, when, when my kids were younger, I had lots of stories that were welling up inside me aimed at younger children. Uh, and that, as my kids are, you know, my, my daughter's 16, my son's 20, I think that, that that actually dried up a little bit. So I, and I, it was harder than to force myself to write again for younger children. Um, just the ideas that didn't quite come. Uh, and uh, I mean, most of my most recent books for, uh, have gone back again to writing for teenagers. I wrote a series of books for a rather brilliant small publisher called Barrington Stoke, who uh, originally concentrated on books for people with um well for reluctant readers in general but um people with dyslexia in particular and so i wrote some slightly for me unusual teenage books which are much more pared down and simple and straightforward a series of books about um uh, uh, two brothers in yorkshire um in very desperate 
poor circumstances and the older brother has learning difficulties the younger brother is essentially his carer because the family has collapsed around them um <clears throat> and they, they were as I say much more pared down and focused than my earlier teenage stuff which was very flamboyant and uh, and elaborate and complex uh, and so and I, I very much found myself back in that world which is my own background in in a small town in yorkshire uh, and I, I i even though they weren't huge sellers um they got quite a lot of prestige they got very nice reviews um one was shortlisted for the carnegie prize actually the second one's just been shortlisted for the carnegie prize and and, and i suppose in a way that prestige took the place of uh, of commerce in being that energy that drove me in, into writing them um, so I think that, that they're probably both my, my, my best books and my most highly acclaimed. Most of my books are character driven and, and these certainly are, but also for the first time in, 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 in Brock, it's, um, it's a book about a place. Um, so I, I was brought up in this small town stroke big village in, in West Yorkshire called Sherburn and Elmet. It's an un- unusual, weird, quirky place. Uh, it's, you know, it's an ancient settlement. It's got an agricultural aspect, but also a kind of industrial aspect. And that bit of West Yorkshire, it's a kind of scrubby um, landscape where um, pit villages are interspersed with with fields and light industrial estates. It's just a strange kind of world. Um, and I, I wanted to write about a poor family in desperate circumstances in 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 that world uh and also i suppose i almost cynically thought about with the main character how do i make the reader love that main character Uh, and i'm sure you've had interviews have mentioned this before this is a a very cynical technique um called pat the dog which is used in a lot of film writing where you show your main character being kind to (laughs) to a, a weaker character or an animal uh, and so my, my main character, uh, Nicky, is the carer for his um, his disabled elder brother. Um, so that's already you're on that character's side. Uh, but then also the, the other um, cynical technique for making your, your characters lovable is to give them undeserved suffering. And so Nicky's family situation is is desperate. Uh, you know, classically, the way you make your, your, your child in particular uh, hero, um, that the focus of the reader's affections is to make them an orphan. Although um, Nicky's not literally an orphan, he's kind of an orphan. His mother's left home and his father has completely fallen apart. So he's essentially on his own with his brother in the, in the, fa- in the family. So there was a slightly cynical engineering of, of, of forcing the, the reader's affections onto the side of, 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 uh, of, of Nicky and then putting him in this particularly, I hope, well-realised, gritty northern setting. Um and then I also knew that I wanted to make the series um, partly a, a kind of blending of the urban world and also the, the natural world. So there's a kind of animal spirit that haunts each of the each of the stories. Uh, and in the, the very first one, it's um, it's a badger. So the very first story in the series is, is called Brock. And the two brothers come across um, some rather bad lads who are out badger baiting, you know, when you take dogs to hunt and kill badgers. And they manage to, to save a baby badger from the um, from these um from the people killing them uh, and they take the badger home baby badger home they look they nurture it and their dad kind of helps them a little bit with this and it helps him get out of his own particular trough and by by looking after the badger they begin the healing process of the family and then that continues over the next next four books everything that you've described to me so far has all been 
an ideal for the story. It's all been quite character-led. But you, mm-hmm. you need a plot in there, don't you? So how does that come about? For instance, when, when you've got the idea of these, of these boys uh, and they don't come from... Uh, they come from quite impoverished backgrounds. Uh, and uh, then how, how, how are you thinking an idea that is going to thread you through a, yeah. a few hundred pages of this? No, it's, it's a very good question. Um, and most of my other books, um, plot's very important to me. You know, as a reader, I love a well-engineered plot. And so uh, even my kind of slightly chaotic, funny, rude teenage books and, and my books for younger children, uh, if you strip that away you, underneath it, that the plot mechanics are very, hopefully, they're, they're very cleverly worked out. Uh, with with this quartet, it was slightly different. They are so character-driven and so embedded in that world um, that, that the plotting is... I'm not saying it's unimportant, but it, it, it was secondary. Uh, I, and I suppose for the first time, what I wanted to be in these stories wasn't funny or clever or, or rude or attention-grabbing. I wanted them to, to be true or to feel true. And, and sometimes a mechanical plot can rip you away from that, that, that sense that this is a real world and real, real people. Um, but within that, I suppose each of the stories has an adventure kind of element to it. So that, you know, the, 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 in the first one, they have to look after the badger and, and I suppose defend it from the, um, from the original badger baiters. So there's a kind of tense thrillerish plot somewhere in there. In the second in the series, Pike, the two boys, um, they come across a, a body floating in a in a in a small lake um and the body has around its wrist a um a, a rather beautiful watch which they they realize that if they can get hold of this watch it's um it's a relic submariner worth you know twenty thousand quid it will transform their family finances so it's a kind of little adventure story in how they managed to ultimately fail to get hold their hands on this watch so there is a kind of plot device in there um, it, it, the third one is uh, is about Nicky's um, standing up to a bully at school and falling in love for the first time. Uh, I, I suppose the, the, the fourth one has some, the, the, both the, the most the simplest and the most Im- plot led kind of structure. Uh, so uh, Lark uh, in, in Lark that 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 their family has almost been healed, so things are much much better at home. Uh, but the two boys go on a, on a walk on the North Yorkshire Moors uh, and get um, lost in a blizzard. Uh, fall down um, a, a ravine, uh, and um, and it doesn't end very well for all of them. Well, let me whittle it down to the simplest part of that. So you know, you want to tell a story about these two boys, as I say, mm-hmm. that that come from poverty. Uh, very simply, this might be quite a, a strange question to articulate for an author, but but what do you do next? What happens next in terms of? Uh, thinking it through, getting ideas, mm. plotting it down before you actually start writing. Mm. Um, well, I suppose, it, again, as I said right at the start of our, our talk, I, I tend to get um, this sudden kind of flash of what will be um, the kind of in embryonic form, the whole, the whole story. It tends to be uh, a situation or an idea rather than the whole plot, but within that idea that the kind of plot is in embryonic form. So, um, so with with the um, with Lark, uh, yeah, the, the plot is very very simple. The two boys go on a walk and it goes horribly wrong. They get stuck in a blizzard. It's a kind of survivalist story. Um, so it didn't re- really require much complex plotting work, if if you like. Uh, and once I knew that was roughly what was going to happen, I sat down and I started to type. 
Um, but I think that with all of my stories, even when you have an idea for a plot, um, you know that you're doing something right if the characters perhaps don't want to exactly follow that plot. They have their own ideas and they might wrench you either side of your plot line. Um, but, it, you know, I've never really struggled with working out what to do next once I've had that original idea. It, it, it's simply a matter, you know, m- m- my job as a writer is to sit down and work it through to, to, the, to the end. Um, and it's, you, you know, the, the difficult part is just those, that mechanics of getting myself physically, getting my fingers moving. Once, once I'm there, it's just not trudging along, but you, you, you follow that path. What I'll know is roughly the start point and roughly the end point. Um, so, I mean, going back to my very first book, Hellbent. So it begins with a teenage boy dying. Uh, and it's a kind of, there's a comedy aspect which is um, that hell's kind of moved on and he's punished in, in a way appropriate to teenage boy, uh, which to cut a long story short, he's, in, he's subjected to an infinite period of boredom. But he this works teenage out. Teenage boy, very quickly, he must have must have done some pretty brutal things <laughs> in the first like fifteen years of his life to, to end uh, well, up well in that's, hell. Yeah, I mean, part of the plot is about he's got to find out exactly what he's done to deserve being there. So that is revealed along along the way. Um, but then, because he's uh, the, the little kind of plot device was that given that hell is specially tailored to each individual person there, he works out that there might be a bit of hell that would be actually quite pleasant for a teenage boy you know if you're if you've got an, an elderly classical music fan <laughs> who loves cl- you know classical literature perhaps if that teenage boy can find his bit of hell and be punished there it won't be so bad so it's the kind of journey aspect so i had both those ideas in my head i also had this idea that at the end there must be a chance that he could possibly escape from hell um so those were the kind of plot points along along the way uh, and everything else was me enjoying myself um so it, it, it wasn't like getting driving along the motorway it was more like knowing that i had to get from london to to, to yorkshire and taking the uh, you know and, and broadly heading north all the time but letting whim um, pull me either side of that that main that main path um and i suppose nearly all my books have got that same kind of a form that i'll know roughly where i need to end up um but in but i want to enjoy the the, the journey let, let it meander um uh, you, you know occasionally you, you'll find yourself in a, in a dead end and that that bit, that bit won't quite have worked um but again i think that a big part of my especially my, my earlier books was the slightly flamboyant baroque or rococo style they're told in um, you know, there's a lot of complex jokes and elaborate metaphors uh, and and, uh, and linguistic play along the way. So that was the other important component of me, both, both, both getting that story told, but making that the journey itself exciting and not exactly the wrong word, but but um, but visually and orally interesting. Last question. Uh, as someone that is, as you say, written 50 or so books um, and a very, very simple one to end. What have you learned about? how you tell stories and how you write that particularly works for you over the course of i don't know 20 years of writing mm. books well that's that's such a hard question um i, I think that um i've had arguments with a lot of my writer friends about this so i think there are two paradigms for, for writing that, that i've come across um and most of my writer friends have the first paradigm which is that the creative process is like it's an internal one that this thing, this thing of beauty, is inside you, and your job as an author is to is to is to get it out, like laying an egg, like this kind of beautiful Fabergé egg. 
Um, so it's uh, so your relationship is with your internal processes. Uh, um, but the other paradigm is the one I've always preferred, which is that writing is a kind of conversation. Um, so I'm in conversation with my reader. So rather than focusing in all the time, I'm I'm looking out at the reader and thinking, is this making you laugh yet? Are you interested? Are you bored? Um, so I'm always trying to perhaps seize the reader by the lapels and and and, and shake him or her and make them make them entertained. So what, what works for me is that 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 conversational paradigm of writing, thinking about uh, even a, a basic question like, why would somebody else want to read this? Uh, and as a reader, why, why, why do you read as a reader? Because the plot grips you, because you love the characters, because um, it's funny, because it's frightening. And so, so those are all outwardly focused aesthetic goals in a way. So that, that's what works for me. It's think it's looking out rather than looking looking in, uh, which I, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't even say that's the way that every other writer should write. Um, but I would say it's something to think about. That, but but you know, by all means, regard yourself as a as a as as an artist creating this thing of beauty inside you. But occasionally look up, see are those eyes of the reader are they are they begin to to film over with boredom. <laughs> and that is it for this week's writer's routine. Thank you so much to Anthony McGowan for sparing the time out of his, as you can hear, horrendously busy work days when he wasn't at the British Library uh, to come and have a chat with me on the show. You can find out more about his Carnegie Award shortlisted Lark over at writersroutine.com. If you heard anything in that chat that you think will help the way that you tell stories, if you would like to say thanks to the show, pay a little back. You can by pledging whatever you can over at patreon.com forward slash writersroutine. Also, uh, I'd love it if you could leave a review for the show over on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you give us a follow on Twitter as well. We are at writerspod on there. Uh, Next week, we are chatting to the best-selling Rachel Abbott. She sold over 4 million psychological thrillers. 4 million! Her new one is called The Murder Game, and she'll be on the show next week to tell us all about how she wrote it on Writer's Routine. I will see you then. Bye. Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage of the French Open begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.